Hello and welcome again to Borders Blatherings, our podcast when we shine a light on the curious, shadowy and often very magical history of the Scottish borderlands. I'm joined, as ever, by Mary Craig, historian, published historian and archivist. How are you today, Mary? I'm very well, thank you, Doug. How are you? I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, but I think today I'm going to start with a little... Rant. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, but don't have a cow. Um, our topic for today, and we're going to have a natter about Sir Walter Scott, mm-hmm. his contribution to the shaping of Scotland yeah. and his legacy in particular. But before we get round to that, uh, he's often credited with a contribution to the English vocabulary with certain phrases like caught red-handed and, and so on. And my mind has been exercised by a famous saying of his, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if over a time span of over 200 years, he had the present UK government in mind when he was actually <laughs> well, yes. coining uh, those words. I know that Donald Tusk, when he was chair of the European Commission, said there was a special place in hell reserved for those who pushed through Brexit <laughs> without any semblance of a plan. But I think Sir Walter got it pretty spot on. I don't I, know how you feel yeah, about I, that. I have to agree with you that. It's a fantastic phrase and it sort of sums it up very, very nicely. When you listen to politicians who say X on Monday, Y on Tuesday, and by Wednesday they've only got their PR person talking to anybody because they're hiding behind their wife. Mm. So, yes, yes, a tangled web indeed. Yeah. So, of course, we're not a political podcast. Uh, We are a history podcast where we just like to blather about things. So maybe now that I can get down off my soapbox, and Mm -hmm. I feel better for having done that, Mm -hmm. we can go back to Sir Walter Scott and his influence on Scottish history. By the way, it was good to see a pretty good turnout at the launch of your new book Ooh, last thank week. Thank you very much. Uh, and I can remind listeners that links to Mary's published works and other resources are available on our website. Indeed. <laughs> Mary, without further ado, <laughs> Sir Walter Scott. Well, you said this wasn't a political podcast, but actually Walter Scott's politics are very, very important and yeah. it informed his writing. It informed his view of the world, and it has had a lasting legacy in the world's view of Scotland as a nation. Yeah. And so politics is writ large through everything that we're going to talk about today, because I'll set you this challenge, he was both a nationalist and a unionist at the same time. Untangle that web. Interesting. That is a tangled <laughs> web. I have to say, I have been a friend of Abbotsford House, uh, Sir Walter Scott's Conundrum Castle. And he himself is a bit of a conundrum. You're beginning to point that out. One thing I have to say, when the visitor centre at Abbotsford House was opened relatively recently, I was very impressed by one of the first installations that visitors would see on entering the new visitor centre. It's a video presentation, which is essentially a conversation between two people, one pro-Scott, one Mm anti-Scott. And talking about the, 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 was he a nationalist, was he a unionist? Uh, And it's, although it's binary, Mm -hmm. it's a very balanced view. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I've traveled to a lot of uh, famous houses, historical sites, and often it's just pro yeah. the, the, the person. And you know all the trouble we're having with statues and stuff like that mm-hmm. in the UK. Um, so I have to say to anyone who's listening, if they're ever in the Scottish borders, take a trip to Abbotsford House, visit the Conundrum Castle, and work it out for yourself, because certainly the man himself was divisive. Absolutely, yes. And as I say, he was, I mean, he was a Jacobin in his heart, but a Unionist in his head. Yeah, yeah. And yet, although obviously in modern politics, you cannot be a a pro-independence person in Scotland and for the Union. He managed to marry the two. And it was the fact that he was a complex person, but understood the complexities of British politics and national identity, that he was able to hold those two apparently contradictory positions quite easily. Yes, yes. And and I think the problem with Scott is that all that nuance, all that intelligent argument has been lost and we're left with the Scott the writer or Scott the tartan idiot. And so all of the nuance and all of the understanding and all the the psychology behind what he did, what he wrote, what he said mm-hmm. and how he acted has been lost along the way, which is actually, I think, of great detriment to the man's uh, legacy. Indeed, indeed. Here's what's... Listeners will know we don't script this, and here's what's coming off the top of my head. The people at Abbotsford, and you know my partner Miriam is on the management team at Abbotsford House, Mm -hmm. they are in the throes of a year-long celebration of Scott's birth. Mm -hmm. So we're talking... The 250, 1771. Yeah. Interestingly for me, you're the historian, <laughs> I'm the question asker. Around that time of Scott's birth, Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson, is doing his great tour yeah. of the Scottish Highlands mm-hmm. where he sets out to explore the deprivation <laughs> and the um, primitive wild place. And yet, some years later, we have Sir Walter Scott painting an entirely different picture of the Scottish Highlands. Yeah. This, for me, is fascinating. Because Walter Scott rescues Scotland. You have to remember that when Walter Scott's around, we're not that long after the rising of the 45, Mm -hmm. or the rebellion of the 45, depending on your point of view. So Walter Scott is an advocate. A lot of the work he's dealing with is about um, 10 years of land, land that's been taken from this one and that one, because the 45 was a living memory. People were alive who had been alive in the 45. People remembered Cumberland and his punitive punishment of the Highlands. The butcher, yeah. But of course, what had grown up, the history that had grown up around that was that everybody in the Highland was wild, they were Gallic, they were violent, they were aggressive, they were, they were almost subhuman. And Johnson goes up and verifies all this by saying, oh, it's poverty and eat oats, we give oats to horses and all this sort of stuff, you see. So Walter Scott comes along. He, he, he was When he was a young child, he lived in the borders and he got a great love of the borders landscape. He was also a great imaginative man. We talked in previous podcasts about weaving and he was a weaver. He wove stories yes. about the borders. Yes. And he had the romance of the Highlands. And, of course, this all taps into the, the sort of philosophy that was around in Europe at the time of the noble savage. 
So you had similar things of people rediscovering the people in the Balkans or rediscovering the people that lived in the Alps. And this was the noble savage, so that, yes, people were different, they weren't civilised, but neither were the animals. They were fighting for their land, they were fighting for their existence, and especially in the Highlands where, and you know this is a language trainer, their language had been taken from them. Yes. So the perception is that everything above the Highland line, there's a you know, wild, aggressive nasty, aggressive people. Don't go near it. It's horrible. It's horrible. And this is where um, Scott's nationalism comes in. He rescues that and he says, no, 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 no. This is noble savagery. This is people fighting for their blood and their bone. And he turns it on its head because he was a nationalist in that he loved Scotland, the romance of Scotland, the history of Scotland. But he was also a unionist. But it was a unionist that he was a union that thought of the Treaty of the Unions had been a coming together of two equal and ancient kingdoms and that the Union was greater than the sum of its parts. So you could be Scottish and a Unionist. You could be English mm -hmm. and a Unionist. Yeah. Yeah. Now, those there are some people who would say, well, actually what he was doing was he was romanticising Scotland. He was putting a kilt on everything and he was ignoring the Enlightenment and the philosophy and, and the, the technological advances that lowland Scotland was doing. And in a way, he did ignore that. But that's because Lowland Scotland was doing fine, thank you very much. It was the Highlands that was dying, and he rescues them. Yeah. He rehabilitates them from the rising of the 45. And he says to the world, look at all of this fantastic, deep, rich history that is here. Isn't it fantastic? Now, the fact that people since Scott took that up and ran with it, and we end up with shortbread tins and the Monica the Glen plastered all over the, the tourist shops in Edinburgh's Royal Mile and Princess Street. Isn't it Walter Scott's fault? What he was talking about was a nuanced argument about Scotland and its place in the Union. And that the Highlands had a history that was tragic and was romantic, but was as equally valid as any <coughs> other country's history. Mm. That's what he was doing. And we've lost that nuanced argument along the way, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah, well put. The, 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 if I remember my history lessons, I think Dr. Johnson, the, 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 the encyclopedia man, Samuel <laughs> Johnson, I'll have to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly, said something like the noblest prospect for a Scotch, he would have said a Scotch man, yeah. would be to see the high road to England. Yeah. <laughs> to which I reply to Johnson <laughs> and his modern namesake. Eat my shorts. Yeah. I mean, we're at, we're at a time where, actually, if you look at the maps of Britain, Scotland doesn't appear on the map. It yeah. becomes North Britain. North Britain. And Walter Scott says, absolutely not. We are Scottish. And that's that was quite challenging. But through his writing and through his work as an advocate, he was able to promote that. The, the thing about Walter Scott is, and I know that possibly his writing isn't something we're really talking about today, but because of his writing... He was an international celebrity. Indeed. I mean, he was European known, so that when he spoke, people paid attention. They listened to what he had to say. So when he said Scotland was an, an equal partner to England, Scotland's ancient kingdom was equal to that of England, people listened. And then, of course, he does things like he found the uh, royal regalia of Scotland. He found the crown jewels of Scotland. They'd been... The Crown Jewels of Scotland had been stuffed in a trunk and shoved in a cupboard in the back of Edinburgh Castle, and nobody had seen them for 200 years. Mm. That's how unscottish we had become in Scotland. We didn't even know where our old Crown Jewels were. 
he found them and he brings them out to the world and shows them to the world and explains to the world, look at these, look at this regalia. This is the oldest crown jewels in Europe. These are the honours of Scotland. This is the crown of James V. And all of a sudden people are thinking, oh, wow, this is completely different. And so he changes this. And all things Scottish because of his celebrity becomes a great thing. Uh, everything becomes la mode écossais, as the French would say. And I know that's wrong pronunciation. My French is non-existent, so I apologise. <laughs> but Scottish was the flavour of the whole of Europe. It was fashionable to like Scotland, to read about the history of Scotland through Scots' writings. So he reinvents, reinvigorates, rehabilitates the whole of Scotland. And as I say, Lowland Scotland does get a bit ignored by Scott, but at the time it didn't need the rehabilitation that the Highlands definitely did. Yeah, indeed. And, and, and talking about Lowland Scotland, although Edinburgh born, Scott did spend... Uh, partly because of his ill health, but he did spend a lot of time down in the Scottish borders when he was a child. Absolutely, right? yes. And his father was a, a, a borders farmer. And, of course, Scott built his great house in the borders because although the majority of his writings were based in the Highlands, it was the borders he lived and the borders he loved. He, in his, his later diaries, he talks about being a child and, and you know being ill and sort of looking out the window where he gets this great love of the borders landscape because anybody that knows the borders, he gets a lot of mists down here and so his imagination starts to get excited. And he's reading books about chivalric knights and he starts getting excited about that. And then as he went out in the borders, he would he would imagine great battles and great quests and these sorts of things, as any, you know, as any child would do. And so though he had a love for the romance and, and the tragedy of the Highlands, his heart was in the borders, absolutely. That's where he made his home. He would never have, he would never have contemplated building the likes of Abbotsford somewhere north of the Highland Glen. He was he was a Borders lad, born and bred. So as he's often, by many, accused of 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 wrapping up this nation in tartan, <laughs> just talk a little bit more about his view of history and. If it's because you've made a compelling argument for just not laying the blame at his door yeah. for wrapping the nation in tartan. The ah. Scots themselves <laughs> have embraced this. Just walk oh, around absolutely, Edinburgh. absolutely, yes. Um, just say a little bit more about um, his view of our history. His view of our history was that it was a history created and evolved and evolving uh, if you go to Abbotsford, they've got an immense collection. He was a collector. Oh, oh yeah. wow, was he a collector. Yeah. And a lot of the things he collected were swords and thumbscrews and shields. And he's got Rob Roy's purse and Rob Roy's dirk and things like this. But he always felt, he said that when he held one of these items in his hands, he felt that he was holding on to history. Uh -huh. And he felt that history... The, he thought of history as a bridge to the past. It wasn't a static thing. It wasn't a, this definitely happened then. It was a way to understand our past and understand our forebears and the way they had lived and how that could inform how we live now and how we would live in the future. So it was a bridge. And I think that's what he tried to do in his writing as well. He tried to bridge that past. In all of his writings, whether you like it or you don't, 
the characters are are believable. They right. might have been fighting two hundred three. You know, young young Lochinvar comes out of the west with nothing but his broadsword and yeah, you know his yeah. his horse was the best horse in the area and all this. And you can imagine this guy. You can understand this guy. He's, he's got nothing. He's got his horse. He's got his broadsword. That's all he's got. But out he goes to war. You know. So these sorts of characters are real people. He's not writing about some area. He's not writing James Bond. I mean, you can't. You know, you look at a James Bond film today and he's got ejector seats and he's got fancy this and fancy that. None of us are ever going to be a James Bond. But you could be a Loch and Var. Uh-huh. So the characters were real. So he used history to illuminate the past, a bridge to the past, but also how we live in Scotland today and how we would live in the future. Because for the folk living above the Highland Lands, they had lost everything. They'd lost their language. They'd lost their land. They'd lost, uh, they couldn't wear the tartan, although we'll come on to tartan in a bit more detail now. Um, they had lost their identity through the breaking of the clans. They had nothing left. They literally had nothing. They'd been chucked off the land, the place was covered in sheep. And so he, he throws them that lifeline by saying, here is your history, be proud of that history, be proud of who you That's were. That's a really balanced and view. using yeah. that yeah. lifeline to pull them back into Scottish society because before Scott, there was lowland Scotland... And then there was the Highlands, and that was it. The Enlightenment happened in Lowland Scotland. You know, all all the trade, all the commerce, all the philosophy, all the politics, all the economics is happening in Lowland Scotland, and the Highlands is where there's sheep, and that's it. And that's what everybody thought. So he brings that back. He throws them that lifeline. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that I've been to Abbotsford more times than I can count, but. He was an avid collector, and one of the interesting things I when I when we had the uh, homestay intensive language students here in the village, I would often take them to Abbotsford. And when you enter the house, you are just hit by this vast arsenal of weaponry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it was always a good little indicator for me because the male German engineers. It would be wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crossbows from the you know the, the, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, for others, it would be oh, yeah. uh, and so very much a conundrum. Yeah. Very much. And of course, because because of his historical interest, I mean, Walter Scott would have loved to have been a soldier, but of course, he had polio as a child, so he couldn't. So the nearest thing he could get to being a soldier was to collect his weaponry and to understand the life of the soldier who is lying in a Highland Glen soaking wet, possibly wounded, being hunted by yeah. the English and what yeah. that life would have been like. Now, I know that he was a member of many societies, the Antiquarian Society, the Highland Society and so on. What was his influence then and what role did he play? Uh, Again, his influence there was to stop the caricature of Scotland. The Antiquarian Society, the Highland Society... It was very much, oh, isn't it quaint? And they used to speak Gaelic, you know, and oh, yes, and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm in the MacDonald clan and all these sorts of things, you know, from Edinburgh, Deuce Edinburgh folk that had never been further north than Stirling. And he shook them up and made them realise and understand their history, not giving them facts and dates and things like that, but telling them stories. The word story is in history for a reason. It yeah. is the human experience, it is the human story. And he pulled them out of looking at Highlanders as you would look at, I don't know, a stuffed penguin in the National Museum of Scotland. It was They were real living people. And uh, apparently there were quite lively debates and there may have been a glass or two of something taken. 
But he brought it to life for them and that's what he did. He breathed life back into these sort of cobwebby organisations that were being very, they were very good and they were very grand and they had all the facts and figures to their name. But they had become lost in facts and figures because, of course, we're talking about the Enlightenment when everything is becoming very scientific and very yeah, rational. Yeah. And they'd lost the human. They'd lost the, the touch of humanity within their history. And he brings that back to them. And he shakes them up. And he really makes them understand what it is to be Scottish as opposed to North British. We, as, as many of our listeners will know, we... It's not that we don't do facts and figures, but we meet to have a, a blether. We we just chat about particular things. Um, you've you've done a really good job of defending Scott. Mm-hmm. Before we sat down to speak today, I thought you might do a bit of an assassination job. So, I... well, we haven't quite got on to the visit of the king yet, so you never know. <laughs> Georgie Porgy pudding and pie kissed the girls and made them cry. When the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgy ran away. Ah, Georgie Porgy. Georgie Porgy. This is something that, that, that plays large as one walks around Edinburgh. You, it, it, it looms large in yeah. our, our own psyche. Yeah. I have to say at this point, one of the, the best books, most informative books I have ever read is called How the Scots Invented the Modern World. <laughs> And, and I often wonder if it's how Sir Walter Scott invented the modern world. Absolutely. But, um, let's then talk about George, George IV. So George IV decides he's going to visit Scotland. Yeah. Now, he may have decided it himself, or it may have been on an invitation <laughs> from Walter Scott, a bit of both. Anyway, George comes up, and Walter Scott is put in charge of this. Now, there hadn't been a reigning monarch in Scotland, visiting Scotland for about 200 years. Yeah. That's how bad it was. So nobody knew what to do. They thought, well, is he going to come up a train? What are we going to do? Well, we'll show him the castle, and then what do we do? So Walter Scott takes over, and he decides that it's going to be all things. He is going to rehabilitate the Highlands through the king's visit. And so he writes this little pamphlet, which goes on sale in Edinburgh for a shilling or sixpence or something like that. And he actually writes in the pamphlet that every good Edinburgh gentleman should be wearing the ancient traditional kilt of his homeland. I mean, we're talking about Edinburgh people, as I say, who'd never gone further north and still, all of a sudden, they're dressed in kilts, goodness knows, and you were to dress in your clan tartan. The thing is that there weren't clan tartans. Mm. There were district tartans, but there weren't clan tartans. So, for example, if the weavers in one area had a particularly red heather, then the tartan would be red in that area. In another area, it might be more purple. In another area, it might be more green. And that may be where a particular clan was formed, or it may not. But the minute Walter Scott says this, and he says to the clans, I'm going to get you down and introduce you to the king. Well, these are clans that have been vilified for, for a couple of generations. They're desperate to meet the king. And if it means dressing up in a tartan, they're dressing up in a tartan. Yep. So they go running back to their weavers and say, what's my clan tartan? And the weavers are like, oh, I don't know, what colour do you want? <laughs> been a little disingenuous there. Um, but this happens, and then, as I say, everybody in Edinburgh is told to wear tartan. Even at the time, Walter Scott's friends are saying, you're going a bit over the top. <coughs> over here. the top, yeah. But you can't blame Walter Scott. Now, he wrote that in that little pamphlet. Doesn't mean to say everybody had to do it, mm. but they did. So out they go. So the king pitches up at Leith, and they take him up to the castle, and they take him to Holyrood House, and they take him to the, to, uh, the, the, the old Kirk, and they take him to the old Parliament. And he actually complains because 
He's not really up for this. He's somewhat overweight, our George, and a bit of a drinker, and he complains that he's actually having to do too much. But the culmination of this was the fact that Walter Scott dresses himself from head to foot in tartan, and he dressed the king in tartan. Now, unfortunately, as I say, George was a little bit overweight. They gave him some pink stockings to wear and a little short miniskirt that had bore no relation to the kilt whatsoever. <laughs> and the political cartoonists of the day had a field day about this. And this became a caricature of what the kilt was. So this one, I'm sorry, I'm really laying that on Walter Scott. So of all the things he could address George in, a shorty, shorty kilt and pink stockings is not the way to rehabilitate the Highlands. Mm. So I am laying the blame firmly at his door for that. But again, he was pushing at an open door. Now, it became fashionable. The great and the good in Edinburgh fell over themselves to wear tartan because the king had worn tartan. And Walter Scott had worn tartan because he was this great celebrity. I'm not quite sure what the Highland clans made of this, but they actually didn't care because it allowed them to sneak back into civilised society, if you like. It allowed them to say, oh, well, we can start wearing the tartan again, the traditional tartan. They'd never quite actually worn anyway, but they could wear their own clothes. Gaelic gets a bit of a resurgence at this yeah, point. Yeah, the wearing of the tartan, which previously has been banned, has and, been banned and so on. All of that comes I'm in. I'm going to... Yes trying not to get into my Brexit analogy again, but they were <laughs> taking back control as They it were taking were. back control, yes. Yeah. And so, although the visit itself was a ridiculous bit of theatre, a mm. ridiculous bit of pageantry, it actually had the effect that Scott wanted it to have. And so after that, there was a pride in Scotland. I mean, his books were bestsellers from the moment they, they were published. Admittedly, with his own publishing company, um, but they were bestsellers. But there was a huge interest after George's visit. Oh yeah, he's especially he's, for the Highland books. He's outselling a, a lot of the uh, arguably more more famous writers today, oh, yeah. the Brontes yeah, yeah. and Austen and Absolutely, so on. He's, yeah. It's often claimed he's the first real international. Uh, yeah, and bestseller. It, it, it could be claimed that he invented the historical romance novel. Yeah. Um, you know, because because of what he was doing, yeah. And it's interesting because his first novels were published anonymously. Um, initially, he'd written poetry, and very good poetry, but unfortunately for him, he was eclipsed by Byron and mm. the Child Harold. And, of course, Byron was younger, was sexier, and he actually was an aristocrat because poetry had classical leanings, and that's what the aristocracy wrote. Novels were either written by women or hacks. So when Walter Scott first publishes his novels, he does so anonymously so that he can say, well, wasn't me, or if he's found out, ah, it was just a bit of a joke. But he's outselling anybody and everybody and continues to do so. And so the the, the, the pink stockings and the wee miniskirt actually did their job in yeah. rehabilitating yeah. Isles and gave even Lowland Scots a, a sort of, you know, a sort of nudge to say, actually, you know what, you know, for every every lowland Scot that, that was in Glasgow, there were at least two Highlanders that had been displaced. And to remind people of their Highland roots yeah. and to remind the fact that Scotland is a country like all European countries, which is a mishmash of Celts and Scots and Picts and Saxons and Angles and all sorts of things. And that was the reminder um, that was done. But, of course, as I say, all the nuance of that has been left behind. And we've been left with shortbread tins, um, which, yeah. 
It's partly Walter Scott's fault, but I would say more those that came after him and didn't have his understanding of what he was trying to do. Yeah, two questions before we finish. Um, my view of Scott's work is not important at this moment in time. I had to read a lot of his work at high school. I felt forced to do it. I'm yeah. not a great fan. Give me Robert Burns any time. Mm. What did Scott's contemporaries think of Scott as a writer? They thought he was amazing. He was known as the Wizard of the North uh -huh. because he had such an imagination. Um, I mean, one of his bestsellers was actually Ivanhoe, which, mm. of course, is English and is the Chivalric Knights. Yeah. Um, he was outselling everybody. His books were well-written. They were well-received. Yes, he was very much. And he was the first one that um, gave novel writing its status. Uh, Georges Simenon, the uh, writer of uh, the Maigret, Maigret books, yeah, yeah. First arrived in Edinburgh, I took one look at the, the Scott Monument and said, what on earth is that? And it was explained to him that that was Walter Scott. And he said, you mean they put up a, a, a monument like that to a writer? To a writer. Yeah. That is how much Scott was a colossus with his writing. I find his novels very much of their time, but the actual content is amazing. Mm -hmm. The stories are amazing. Yeah. Although the prose is not to my modern mind, one that I would choose. I prefer John Buchan, but... I, 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 I think I share your view. Um, and let's just finish on that. If I'm sure one could go onto that damn thing called the internet and find <laughs> any number of lists about those uh, British writers who made the biggest contribution to language, yeah. for example. Yeah. They're all very subjective. Yeah. And you may have noticed that I've put in a couple of phrases like don't have a cow and eat my shorts. <laughs> yeah. Because I could argue that Matt Groening and his team at uh, The Simpsons through the mouthpiece of Bart Simpson has made a valuable contribution yeah. to modern vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. But Scott did contribute a lot. He absolutely of, did. Of uh, new yeah. vocabulary to the yeah. language. Yeah. And even just, I mean, there are European writers, a lot of the Russian writers, Dostoevsky, writers like that, if you look at them, you can see the influence of Scott in their writings. So, yeah, he was, he was a colossus, as I say. He was the Wizard of the North. Great. Mary, thanks a lot. I've enjoyed talking to you about Sir Walter Scott, and you've given a very balanced view of the man. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, on our website, uh, people will find links to many other source materials if they want to take this further and investigate that. For now, Mary, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And as I said, don't have a cow about this episode. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Doug. Bye. Bye. Some say that Scott's biggest sin was to tartanize our Scots nation, but the man was sincere about the land he held dear. And hey, look! What a cool shortbread tin!